Good evening. Tonight, the youth group will be giving lessons over the Beatitudes. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus left for Galilee and began his ministry. He traveled to Capernaum and stayed there for a little bit, preaching about God to try and persuade the people to become Christians and to follow God before it was too late. Then he traveled to the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, as was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah years ago. Matthew 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus then returns to the Sea of Galilee to call his first disciples. Their names were Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who were all fishermen. Jesus called them by saying, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus, followed by his disciples, helped many people by healing them and making them well. In return, those people started following him, which caused great multitudes to follow Jesus to a mountain. Everybody, please turn to Matthew 5. Turn to verses 1 through 3, and we are going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Oh, excuse me. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, Blessed are the humble, for they shall be in heaven. The definition of humble is having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. Proverbs 16:18 says, Pride goes before destruction. Luke's account in chapter 6, verse 12 says, Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you, poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed in this verse means that those who belong to Christ are truly happy. We should be happy in Christ because we have a chance to go to heaven. If we are walking in the light as he is in the light, we have to serve him and we want to stay positive while serving him. Joy comes from within, no matter what our circumstances are. Always be humble and God will bless us. Be joyful because we know God has prepared a place for us in heaven. Now, Dylan will be talking to you about verse 4. Thank you. Good evening. Tonight I will get the opportunity to share with you a few thoughts I had over Matthew 5, verse 4, which states, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will, will be comforted. First, I'd like to go over what the word mourn means. The definition I found on Google states, Feel or show deep sorrow or regret for someone or their death. In this passage, I think that it isn't only referring to someone's passing or loss of something physical, but I think it's referring to us mourning over our sins. Because when we mourn over our sins, we are showing to him that we know that we are in the wrong and we need to change our ways. And when we show that we want to change and need his help, that's what he does. He comes and he comforts us. As we recognize this, we also mourn this life because it is sinful and not what it should be. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he knoweth, he foreknoweth, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of this of his son that he might be firstborn among many brethren and 2 Corinthians 3:18 but we all with unveiled face beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just just as by the spirit of the Lord here we read that we wait for the ultimate comfort when the, our transformation will be complete. This life has its struggles, but we look for the day when we all have nothing to mourn. The day the ultimate comfort will, will be when we shed this imperfect body and are raised and clothed in the glory to be with God forever. So tonight I was given Matthew 5, 5, if you want to flip there. Just read that short little verse. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, if we take a look at this verse, uh, the word that stands out, of course, is meek. Uh, And if you look at the Google definition of that word, it's given as gentle, quiet, easily imposed on, or submissive. However, in this verse, I don't want to look at it that way. I want us to kind of look at it in the light as being having power under control or exercising self-discipline or restraint with the power that we've been given. God hasn't called us to be feeble. He's called us to be strong and courageous, as we see in Joshua 1.9, because it takes a strong person to have the courage to turn the cheek in trying situations. Uh, Two men in the Bible who stand out and exemplified meekness are Jesus and Moses. They showed us examples that we can still follow as Christians of today. Both of them were powerful men who were not clothed in arrogance or pride, but instead wore coats of humility. The Bible tells us that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Numbers 12.3 Based on the concept many hold of meekness and humility, they see it strange that a character, for it to be character traits of Moses, saying that he led a ragtag group of millions of people out of slavery in Egypt through the Sinai wilderness to the land that God has promised Abraham. When the Israelite people demonstrated a lack of courage for the sacrifices Moses constantly made on their behalf, he said nothing. When the people constantly complained about his leadership, he did not retaliate. And when his own brother and sister jealously questioned his authority, he interceded for them to minimize God's punishment. But as apparent as his meekness was before his brethren, his humility before his God was even more profound. When God spoke, there was no room for irreverence or compromise. For Jesus, he was characterized by his gentleness as well as being the perfect example. He always defended God's glory and ultimately gave himself as a sacrifice for others. Jesus didn't lash back when criticized, slandered, or treated unjustly, but he did respond fittingly and firmly when God's honor was profaned. Of his truth, or his truth was challenged or neglected. He cleared out the temple by force, and he he repeatedly and fearlessly denounced the hypocrisy of the Jewish Jewish religious leaders. When his time of suffering came, however, Jesus submitted to the will of his father and endured endured abuse and murderous actions of the hypocritical leaders. He demonstrated meekness to the very end. With these two men setting the example, we can clearly see that meekness is not weakness. Moses was was strong but not arrogant. He realized that the power he had had been a gift from God. And while Jesus was perfect, he was not arrogant. And both of these men knew that they were to submit to God. 
They gave their all for him and did not let anybody defile his name, even when they were outnumbered. And Jesus was even humble enough to die on the cross for the sins of the same people who wanted to kill him, because that's what his father wanted him to do. Because of this meekness, because of this, our meekness should pour out of us, and because of the humility and compassion that we show, others should be able to see the compassion and everlasting love that God has showed to us. How we can be hungry for the Lord. How to be hungry for the word. We need to be hungry for the word like you're hungry for a lacrosse win or a basketball win. The idea is that of a passion that is inside of us. We need to be trying our hardest to learn more about the word as much as you would be trying to get a win. We also need to be hungry for the word like we are hungry for our next meal. We will do whatever we can to get our food as fast as possible. So why would we wait to hunger for the Lord? for the word. When you're thirsty, you can hardly think of anything else. Your mind focuses on needing water to drink. How amazing that first sip of water tastes on a super hot day or after a rough sports practice. How can we thirst for the word? We can go to church events like going to camp or family retreats and trying to learn more about the Lord. We can study about the Lord with others and we can do stuff like making a lesson for Sunday night to learn more about scripture. Jesus taught the crowd that came to hear him speak on the mountain, blessed are those who thirst, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, Matthew 5, 6. Hungering and thirsting is not a mild feeling. They are intense feelings. If you are hungry and thirsting, then you have a deep craving and eagerness and passion to pursue it. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the God as the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 42, 1 through 2. David has a thirst for the living God. He earnestly seeks the Lord, and there is desire in his words. Our desire must be for the word of God, not just a mild interest in what God calls us to do. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. John 4.10 The gift of God to us is living water. We need, we need to see your relationship with God as important as food or drink. And how can we fill our thirst for the Lord? We can fill our thirst for the Lord by going to church events with others like the men's retreat or ladies' retreat. You have time to learn more about the Lord and fill your thirst for the Lord. Also like the Soaky Summer Youth Series, you can talk to friends and learn more about the Lord there. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. John 6:35. We must be consumed with Jesus and desires and desire his ways in our lives. Only Jesus can satisfy. In the book of Matthew chapter 5 verse 7, it reads, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What are your first thoughts when you hear this verse? When I first saw this verse, I thought that it might mean, if you are good and show mercy, you have mercy shown to you. But the more I reflected on this verse, the more it showed a different message. It shows that we don't just have to show mercy ourselves, but we have to pay mercy forward when we receive it. One example of mercy in the Bible is the parable of the unforgiving servant. In Matthew Chapter 18, starting at verse 21, 
It tells a story of a man who owed 10,000 talents to the king. This man in no way could ever pay off this debt, even with a whole life's work. The king then told the man to sell all that he had to pay off this massive debt. The man then fell to his knees and begged the king to have mercy, and the king was so moved by him that he forgave him of all of his debts. The man was showed mercy when he didn't deserve it and was very thankful for it. However, this is when the story takes a turn for the worst. The man saw another servant who owed a very small amount of money to the king and confronted him. And once he did, he grabbed him by the neck and commanded him that he pay his debt immediately. The servant fell to his knees like he did and begged the man to give him more time to pay off his debt. But the man didn't listen. He threw him into prison until he could pay off his debt. The other servants were so shocked by the man's actions, they went to tell the king immediately. And once he heard the news, he was furious with the man who he had recently shown mercy to. The king then said to the man, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have the same compassion for your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? The king then threw the man in prison to be tortured for his actions until the man could pay off his original debt. At the end of this parable, in verse 35, Jesus gives the closing to this parable. He says, So my heavenly Father will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother for his trespasses. God makes it simple for all of us. All we have to do is show our brother's mercy. This man was given mercy when he didn't deserve it, and he still prosecuted his brother for having a lesser debt. He was shown mercy and didn't pay it forward. So if you ask me what I think Matthew 5-7 means, I would say that when we're given mercy, we should be encouraged by our blessing and want to be merciful to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you. When you think of pure, what comes to mind? Maybe a pure body? When we try not to eat artificial substances and eat those things that are purely made? Maybe a pure mind when we guard what goes into our mind by watching appropriate shows on TV or by participating in appropriate forms of entertainment? But tonight, I want to focus on a pure heart. We can define a pure heart as being selfless and caring more about others than ourselves and striving to change our actions so that they are kinder and less selfish. So then, that the question becomes, how can we get a pure heart? My goal tonight is to answer that question. The first way to have a pure heart is to simply get a new heart. Romans 12:2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What this passage encourages is not to not conform into our natural worldly ways, but to transform by renewing our minds, in other words, our hearts. Look at Matthew twelve thirty four. You brought you brought of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart the mouth speaks. The second way to have a pure heart is to love what God loves. What does God love? He, first, God loves people. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Second, God loves sinners. 
Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we, are, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And lastly, God loves Christians. 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. These verses are, are different, but all have the same meaning. And the meaning is that we need to love each other, and we need to love him because he first loved us. The last way to have a pure heart is to have self-control. Self-control is one of the few fruits of the Spirit. Why is self-control so important? Proverbs 25:28 reads, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. The passage is saying that we need self-control or our lives will be destroyed. Nehemiah prayed in saying that we need self-fasted to God for four months before petitioning the king to return to his home and reinforce Jerusalem's city walls. When, we, when he arrived into the city, he looked at the damage and got to work. In spite of all that was against him, he led his people in rebuilding the wall and succeeded. By fasting for four months, he demonstrated self-control by waiting on the Lord. The biblical meaning of self-control is resist temptation. In closing, I want to reference Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We have to... Just give our hearts to God and let him cleanse us. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red, yellow, black, and white. They make no difference in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Most of us know this song, and you probably heard it when you were little. That song's really simple. And it's why many of us learned it as a little kid, but the song has so much truth behind it. Matthew 5, 9 says that blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. God expect, uh, expects us as Christians to be peacemakers, but many of us aren't too good at that task. Many of us could sit and argue with a brick wall if we needed to. We all seem to fuss and fight most of the time, but we can't be in such a habit of doing this all the time because as Christians we're to be peacemakers to be considered the children of God. Peace comes through forgiveness and repentance. And Jacob and Esau are a great example that we see in Genesis because when Jacob finally decided to re return home to his brother, he was very nervous and worried that they would not be at peace with one another. Esau just forgave Jacob and they found peace between each other after being angry and apart for years. Jesus also gives us a wonderful example in John 14:27. Shortly before Jesus is crucified, he's talking with his disciples and tells them, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. That tells us that no matter what they would face, they are secure with Jesus. We can share that same peace from Jesus as the disciples did. We can all find ways to make peace in certain situations like Jacob and Esau found peace through forgiveness and repentance. And Jesus gives us the peace against all the troubles throughout our lives. Christ's, life's, Christ's life and his teachings were and continue to be completely countercultural. Some of the teachings that are most contrary to what the world tells us may come from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus explains who was truly blessed. In this sermon from Jesus, he describes various groups of people whom he says are blessed. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, he says, 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. To the world, this seems to be the opposite of being blessed. But we are reminded over and over in Scripture the truth of that statement. As a Christian, our primary focus is being conformed to the image of Christ. We often think about Christ's goodness when we study and reflect on his life. But what about the ridicule and rejection that he faced? What about all of the terrible things that were said about him and all of the hate he received? Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Possibly no Christian has ever been rejected and ridiculed more than Jesus. He came to earth in a fleshly body to bring salvation to his people. The Jews had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. But because Jesus wasn't the earthly king that they had anticipated, they immediately rejected him. We read in John chapter 7, verse 5, that not even his own brothers believed in him. In Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58, we read that Jesus didn't even perform miracles in his hometown because of the rejection. Some of the most painful rejection that Jesus faced was from the ones who claimed to love him the most, his disciples. While Jesus predicted both the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter, it was still very hurtful. We can see this ridicule and rejection come to its height as he was mocked and made fun of while he suffered on the cross. At the very end of his life, we see at the very end of his life we see Jesus feel the most pain in Matthew 27 verse 46 as he cries out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" While no one faced more rejection and ridicule than Christ, we also see a variety of other Christians who went through similar hardships. We can look through the Old Testament and see how Joseph was rejected by his family, Job was ridiculed by his friends, God's prophets were often rejected by his people. In the New Testament, many of Jesus' disciples were treated the same way. Paul was thrown into prison multiple times and made fun of countless more times. Stephen was even stoned to death for his display of faith. Our focus must be on our response. We have to ask ourselves how those biblical examples reacted to the ridicule and rejection that they faced. At times, we see these people quietly respond or even just walk away. At other times, we see situations confronted with the truth of God's word. We even see Christ extending forgiveness as he hung on the cross. These actions can sometimes seem impossible, but as we work toward being conformed to the image of Christ, we can cling to verses like Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We also need to focus on the blessings we receive through these trials. Difficult times force us to lean on God and his strength, helping us to grow closer to him. In the words of C.S. Lewis, those who suffer the same things from the same people for the same person can scarcely not love each other. These sufferings that we go through in our lives draw us near to one another. There may be those here tonight uh, who have not begun their Christian walk and haven't uh, accessed the power that comes from God to help us get through our own struggles. Or there may be those here tonight who are Christians but are struggling in one way or another. God gave us the church as our support system and an avenue of strength as we face life's difficulties. While we might be ridiculed and rejected by the world, this is our source of strength and comfort. If we can help you any way tonight, please come forward as we stand and sing.